Open up your Bibles that want to Psalm 1 Samuel 15, please. 1 Samuel 15. Today we're going to be looking at the life of Saul. And I'm going to start telling his story in the earlier part of 1 Samuel. And I'm going to catch up with you in 1 Samuel 15, all right? Saul was the very first king of Israel. Prior to that, God had ruled directly with the, through judges and priests. And the people wanted a king. They wanted to be like everyone else around them. So they got Saul, the very first king. He, one of the things about Saul was that one of the defining characteristics of his reign was fear. Fear. From the very first time they tried to announce his coronation, they're looking for him. They said, we have a king for you. We have a king for you. We'd like to introduce him to you now. Saul. 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 Does anyone know where Saul's at? And Saul's hiding behind the luggage instead of stepping forward into the authority of his rulership, right? So there he is, the very first thing out of the box. He's afraid. And they have to go and find him and bring him forward and say, you're the king now, you belong up here. It wasn't long after that in 1 Samuel 10, I mean 1 Samuel 13, when he was impatient about making a sacrifice and going into a battle situation. And he felt like he needed this direction that was going to happen through the sacrifice. And so he decides, Samuel's not here. I'm just going to do this myself. And in doing so, he brought on the wrath of God because he was afraid of making of the people and afraid of making the wrong decision. And so he went out and did the wrong thing. And then in Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 15, perhaps is the most commonly associated passage with Saul. God has told Saul to utterly destroy every living thing among the Amalekites, even the animals. This is going back to ancient sin that had been committed when the people were coming out of Israel, out of Egypt. And so he goes into battle, and Samuel comes down to greet him, and he runs out and says, Samuel, I just want you to know I did everything God told me to do. Everything. And there in Samuel then says one of the most great replies in all of Scripture. And he said, Then what is this bleeding of sheep or this lowing of cattle or oxen I hear in my ears? In other words, he's saying, If you did what God told you to do, I wouldn't be hearing cattle and sheep right now. You disobeyed. And as soon as he's confronted with his disobedience there in chapter 15, what does he say? I was afraid of the people. They made me do it. They made me disobey God. And then, a passage that's very familiar with many people, Samuel utters this phrase out of 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination as iniquity and adultery. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Or, as the Living Bible states it, it says, does the Lord really want sacrifices and offerings? No. He doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants you to obey him. 
Rebelling against God or disobeying him because you're proud is just like worshiping idols or asking them for advice. And in verse 24, that's where he says, but these people, I was afraid of them. Then David is introduced into the story of Saul. And as the people, and as he has success, Saul begins to fear David. And then his fear of David causes Saul to fear his own son, Jonathan. And he even attempts to, com- to murder his own son. And the tentacles of that fear ran far and reached those who were even unaware and totally innocent. At one point, David killed all the priests in one village and all their family. Saul did. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm so glad you people helped me preach these sermons, especially the last two weeks, all right? Saul did. And only why? Because of the fear of someone helping David. Fear caused him to make enemies of his allies and even of his own family. But it's in the last episode of his life that I want us to look deeper in today. So flip on over to 1 Samuel 28, verse 3. 28, verse 3. I'm going to read a few verses and then we'll keep going through it. Now Samuel was dead. The prophet Samuel has died. Samuel had been the prophet who had guided Saul his entire time as king. And now he's died. He is dead. And it says, So Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his home city. And Saul had removed from the land all those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was what? All over again, afraid. And his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Urim was a a way of divining God's direction with the high priest. So Saul said to his servants, verse 7, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there's a woman who is a medium in Endor. And Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes, and he went with two men, And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up whom I desire. And the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then lying a snare for me to bring about my own death? And Saul vowed to her, saying, As the Lord lives, there should be no punishment come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what, does he, what do you see? And the woman said to him, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. If you go down further, finally Samuel speaks to him, and he tells him that before, by this time tomorrow, you will join me among the dead. That's not the kind of news you want from your local fortune teller. Here she is. She's just giving this news to the king who's outlawed her local profession. 
He has just even himself said broken his own law because of his fear. And at this point, don't you think, he made the laws and now he's breaking the law. And it's kind of like you're like just kind of shaking your head like going, what was he thinking? Why was he doing that? God said not to do that. And here he is doing it himself. But if we stop looking at Saul and we look at ourselves, we are more like Saul than we'd like to admit. Pay attention as the story continues to unfold here. He was terrified by the vast numbers of people, the army against him. And as he goes through here, he has gone to this woman and asked her to tell him what's going to happen. And she has given him what he wanted to know, except for it's not the news he wanted to know. It's that you are going to die by this time tomorrow. Here his fear has driven him to do the very thing he said that no one else was allowed to do. Fear has caused Saul to seek a solution, to find an answer, to do what is wrong. Do you think that is ever true of you? That your fear causes you to do what is wrong? Students, you know, your fear that you might flunk the test causes you to find a shortcut to the answers? Bosses, business people, your fear of not making money causes you to find shortcuts to turning a profit? And absolutely, every single week, I'm sure that your fear of being late to church makes you speed to get here because you're so anxious. I know, all right, never mind, all right. Safety and security, fear, is a powerful motivator. And Saul is not alone in experiencing fear. Think of the way that fear shapes you and I. Take a moment. Take a moment. What is one or two things that you are honestly afraid of? Honestly afraid of. Our former campus manager here, Cameron, I would take Cameron with me anywhere into any dark alley and have no fear. But you put a snake in front of him and he's a screaming teenage girl. (laughs) Pastor Steve, it's spiders. He doesn't like spiders. Fear of flying is not uncommon. So right now, let me just ask you right now, let's take an an informal poll. How many of you are afraid of flying? How many of you are willing to admit it? Okay, I only have three or four honest people in the whole room. There are liars among some of you right now. You need to repent, right? I know a lot of people are afraid of flying, right? And, and, they, and, and why? why? Someone talk to me. Can be, why are you afraid of flying? Because you're afraid of crashing? Okay. I talked to someone recently, and they said, because I'm not in control. Right? They said it's not safe. So let's just think about that, all right? Fear of flying. Now, I admit that flying at 573 miles at 32,000 feet and you not know who's driving that tin can up in the air is disconcerting, right? But when you move beyond how you feel about the situation and you consider the reality of the situation, things change. 
Research demonstrates that you, you stand a 1 out of 98 chance of dying in a car accident versus a 1 out of 7,178 chance of dying in a plane accident. So now then, which is safer? But do you think you feel safer just because you know the facts? I bet you that none of you are going to run out and jump on a plane that are afraid of flying now, are you? Because facts don't change how we feel very often, do they? And the reason is, is because, like people have said, I don't have control. That's why I don't fly. And the research just shows that driving affords more personal control that, and making it feel safer. That's why more people want to drive than fly. Or that's why the people do that. Let me touch on another area of safety that is really prevalent in our culture. As a matter of fact, it is even impacting what we're doing this morning. What we're doing at this very moment. Do you feel safe going to church right now? Many of you walked in today and you said, why is there a police officer in our parking lot? Are we safe? The number of places of worship that have been attacked has risen. And so many, many people, matter of fact, after the Pittsburgh shootings, I had people stop me in the foyer and say, do we have a plan? What's going to happen to us? How will we handle that? And so what can we do? You look at all the doors in this place. There's doors everywhere on this campus. So how would we ever become safe here? Would we have a private escort for police that would check us all there at the gate and make sure we're all who we say we are, that we all have good intentions? Would we put up metal detectors? Would we run a background check on everybody before they come in? We could train us all. We could orient us all. We could do all kinds of things to make us feel safer. But would we be safer? Could we stop every single attempt to anyone who wanted to harm us in any situation at all? Is that little turn of a knob on your door at home really keeping you safer? Or do you just feel safer? There is a difference between feeling safe and being safe. Now, I don't know much about Pokemon. Honest, I don't. And if anyone, I might have to do a primer on it. But this is an image off a Pokemon card called Security Duck. You see, and I don't know if you can tell, that's a duck standing next to the armed camouflaged guy with the machine gun swung across his back. Now then, ask ask me this. The the image, the title on the image says Security Duck. Not man, duck. And immediately it makes you see, the image that they're trying to project to you is, This duck is standing security over those people. But is that possible? When you think about it, what is the image, what is the message of it? They're saying, well, the the duck is taking care of it. Is it the duck or is it the man? Is it what the card wants you to believe or is it really the guy standing next to him? One might be that the armed soldier is the one really making things secure, but the title says it's the duck standing there with some authority to try and make sure that everything is in control. 
consider this. Is it possible that most of the things we do only make us feel safe? We tell ourselves we're safe because something is there. We tell ourselves we're in control because we're driving. We tell ourselves we're in control, we're safe because we turn the knob on our door. Some of us have gone so far as to say, I'm in control and I'm safe because I'm a personal carrier. Perhaps we're not as safe as we think we are. In Saul's case, his fear drove him into further sin as he tried to control the situation. And that's what happened to him his whole life. He tried to control the situation, and every time he did, motivated by fear, he made his situation worse. And meanwhile, have we not felt the same fear? Perhaps not of losing a kingdom, but of losing a job? Perhaps of losing a wife or a husband or a child? Of losing influence or position a reputation. We're afraid of what people are going to think of us, so we don't do what we know is right, and we say what they want to hear. We control the situation to get the feedback, to get the impressions, to get what we think is going to make us safer, more comfortable in a situation. We seek control, but what does God say about fear and control? He uses very, very few words, but he uses them over and over again. In Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord, your God, goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Have I not commanded you? Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Isaiah 43.1, but now this is what the Lord says. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And that's just a sample. He goes on and on again in so many verses And if you look it up and you want to say, what does God say about fear? He always says, I am with you. I am with you. And and, and pay attention. Because when we are the one afraid, when we are the one who's fearful, we begin to read things into the text. We begin to think, we begin to say, this is what he says. So when he says, I am with you, he does not say, I'm removing you from the situation. He does not say, I'm making a way for you in this situation. He does not say, I'm making this situation less dangerous. He does not say, I'm going to make sure that nothing happens to you. He doesn't say that in any of those passages. He says, I am with you. I am with you. Think about that. Think about that. Nowhere in the text does he say, I am going to make you safe. He says, I am with you. You see, the solution to fear is not a lock, a weapon, a police officer. It's Jesus. 
The solution to fear is Jesus. It's that he is with us. That he will stand by us in those situations. He promises more. He promises himself. And time and again, when God's people are in trouble, God's only assurance was, don't be afraid. I am with you. In Psalm 23, 4, out of the song we already sang this morning, or no, not today, we, um, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I am with you. I will comfort you. He doesn't re- promise to remove the harm. He doesn't promise to remove the danger. He doesn't promise to make everything better. Even, like Joan said, he doesn't take away the cancer. He doesn't keep people alive forever. But whatever circumstance you find yourself in today, he is knocking at the door of your heart saying, I am with you. I am with you. So you're like going, well, that's great. So what? He is with me. What does that mean to me? There's only one way to find out. I can't do it for you. Your mama can't do it for you. Your daddy can't do it for you. Your husband can't do it for you. Your wife can't do it for you. Only you can say, if he is truly with me, I will test him and find out what that means. And for you, in that moment of fear, in that moment of uncertainty, to say, if you are truly with me, Right now, I trust you. I believe you are with me in this situation. You know, it, again, I haven't used the line in a long time, and this time I'm not going to use this line. I'm going to use this line, okay? And so standing on this side of the line, I'm afraid. I am terrified of whatever it may be. And, and he says, I am with you. He says, just believe that. Step over that line into believing that and see what I will do with your fear. See what I will do with your circumstance. See what I'm going to do in that situation. But if you stay on this side and say, I don't know if I can trust you, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to be afraid. And not only that, more than likely, because this is what our default is, more than likely on this side of the line in your fear, you're going to figure out how you can get control and how you can feel safe whether you are or not. And that usually ends how? Badly. Badly. But he says, I am with you. And for you to understand that, for you to to really understand what that means, for you to experience me with you, you have to step over that line and say, I believe that. I, I believe that. And just step over and say, right now, I don't understand how this works. I don't understand how this happens. I don't understand what you're going to do next, but I believe you're with me. And right now, I place my faith in that truth that you have taught me out of your word. Now, what happens? And then wait for what he's going to do. And as we've said often around here, it's like you begin to build up some spiritual muscle memory. 
So that when you step over and you step into believing that he is with you and you see what he deals with your circumstance, you see how he steps into that with you and you go, whoa, God is with me in this. This is really great. I'm still in danger, but I sense God's presence and I will not be afraid. And this situation passes in a month, a year, two years, ten years down the road. There's another situation of great fear, of great danger, whatever it may be. And he again comes to you and he says, do you remember that time when I said, believe me, and you believed me? Do you remember how that worked out? And again, he says, believe me again. And you're going to go, I remember how that worked out. I'm going to step over, and I'm going to step into belief and experience you again. And the more you step over your fear and into your belief of his promises in your life, what happens with that is you begin to go, he's pretty faithful. I can pretty much trust him with anything in my life. And this time, when I see something coming, I'm going to trust him. And you know what? When Steve has has fear in his life and Steve doesn't know what to do with it, I'm going to go to Steve. I'm going to say, Steve, you need to trust him because this is what he did in my life. But if you stay on this side of the fear, this side of the fear line, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be afraid. You're going to be afraid. And you're going to make mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. And then this is what church people do. This is what church people do. They stay on this side of the fear line, and then they go, you know what? That God stuff doesn't really work. He says he's going to take care of everything and make sure everything goes great for me. He didn't say that, did he? But that's how we believe. That's what we want to believe for ourselves, that he's going to make everything go great for us. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell, honest engine. That's just not a saying. And if you believe that, you were deceived and you didn't get it here. You got it from your heart that wanted to believe that. But the fact of the matter is, he never said it was going to go great for you. He said, I'll be with you and I'll turn all things to the good. That's what Joan said. But what happens to church people, they stay on this side of the fear line. And then after a while they go, you know what? That God, he isn't so great after all. And so I don't believe anymore. He's not real. And they walk away. He's not real. When he's real, but he does not deal with us on our terms. He only deals with things on his terms and stepping into belief and obedience and faith. This morning, if you're in a situation of great fear, if you're in a situation of like great uncertainty, Don't go and look to have a cop sit in your parking lot. Don't drive yourself to Florida. Believe him. Don't try and fix it yourself on this side of the line. Believe him and say, I don't understand how you work. I don't understand what you're going to do, but I believe you. And step into faith and step into belief and just watch him work. Just watch what he's going to do. And then after he does it, I'm going to expect you to be up here telling all the rest of us about it. All right? Because that's what he wants. That's what the psalm says. Proclaim his wonderful deeds, his mighty deeds. Proclaim them. And that's what Joan's doing. That's what we're doing every third Thursday when we come up here. We're proclaiming them. So he doesn't promise to remove things from us, harm or danger. He only promises to be with us. And then this is the thing. Isn't he enough? 
Isn't he enough? Isn't it enough that he says, I'll be with you? And see, when we say on this side of the line, what are we saying? We're saying, no, no, you're not enough. I want to be in control. I'll take care of this. You just watch me work. And you go, I've seen this a thousand times. Yeah, you'll be back talking to me in a moment, in a year, on your deathbed. But you'll be talking to me because it won't work out well for you on that side of the fear line. This morning, if you are wrestling with something that has just really got your attention, or if you have something that you know it's going to come up this week, next week, next month, next year, and it does conjure up that fear in you, and you want to control things your way, trust Him. Believe Him. Step over that line of fear and into believing Him and see what He'll do in your life and how true He'll be. And you'll begin to build up that muscle memory, that that faith, spiritual muscle memory of knowing what it's like to believe Him and have Him be real and wonderful and big in your life. Don't you want that? Don't you want to talk about him that way? Don't you want to be able to say, this is what he did. Let me tell you. I was afraid. And then he said, I am with you. And I believed it. And this is what he did. Don't you want to have that testimony of how God's working in your life? Or do you want to be staying on this side of the fear line and going, I'm okay. I'm okay, really, I'm okay. I don't have any fear. Let me tell you, I and many of us want to talk about how great he is in our lives. Let's encourage one another. Let's push each other to step over the fear line and into belief so we can talk about him and how great and how glorious he is. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you so much that you make great promises to us and that you are faithful to your promises, that you do not ever find an excuse or reason to be unfaithful. You are never too busy. Nothing ever snuck by you. Nothing ever got past you. And you knew about everything that was going on in our life. And you had an answer for all those things. And that answer is you, that you are with us. Today, Father, do a work in our heart, in our life, that we can step over that line of fear and into believing you and into walking with you in a more intimate, wonderful, beautiful way. And it's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.